All right, now tonight, we're going to be looking at Daniel chapter 7. Now, what we're dealing with is prophecies that have not yet been fulfilled, okay? Now, how many of you are thankful that the Bible is the Word of God, okay? Now, when I say that, I literally mean it. All Scripture, 2 Timothy 3.16 says, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. Now, inspiration, Greek word, theo, that's theos, God, neustos, breathed out. What Paul is telling us in 2 Timothy 3.16 is that all Scripture is breathed out by God. And God doesn't make mistakes. So the Bible is unlike any book in the entire world. It's the only book in the world that's not from the world. It's from another place. God moved on holy men of old, Peter tells us. And as these men were moved on by the Holy Spirit, they wrote down the things that the Holy Spirit led them to write. Now, some of what they wrote is prophetic. And uh, you know the word prophecy. It can mean forthtelling. That is right now, in a way, I'm prophesying because I am telling forth the word of God. But the other meaning is foretelling. And that's when you step into where few fear to tread. You better have the word of God uh, when you go there because we're quickly going to know whether or not uh, you were hearing from God. Because when you foretell, then God is showing you something in the future that hasn't arrived yet. And he's showing you what will be. I like to say... God looking down, he always looks down from 30,000 feet up, right? In other words, he sees the whole thing start to finish. Let me give you a quick illustration. This is a wind-up to my message tonight. Here's a quick illustration. If you and I were standing in front of a parade, let's say we're at Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade, and we're, so we're in Chicago, and we're watching this huge parade go by. We're standing on the sidelines, and we're watching them go. All that we can see is what is in front of us. And maybe a little bit to the right and the left, but we can't see the end of this thing. We can't see the beginning of it. It's way too big, but we see the people as they pass by. So we have a limited view, all right? But if I take you up on a 30-story skyscraper and we look down on the parade, we can see the beginning, we can see the end, we can see the in-between. And you know what? We can tell those at the end what happened in the beginning. And we can tell people in the middle what happened at the beginning and what is happening at the end. Because we see the whole thing in front of us. All right? So we're able to take in the whole parade all at once. So I see the start, the finish, and the in-between. The people lagging way behind, I can tell them Here's what's coming as you come forward. I can tell you exactly what to expect, what you're going to see. Now, God does not dwell in time. God dwells in eternity. And everything he looks at down here is like the person on the skyscraper looking down on the parade. He sees the end, he sees the beginning, and he sees the in-between. And he's able to tell us what's coming before it arrives because he has already seen it arrive. Can I have an amen? I hear your minds thinking, this is really real now. I know it's a mind bender. 
But when God looks at you, he sees your end right when he sees your beginning. He sees when you're born, he already knows how it's all going to end, what you're going to do, whether or not you're going to be saved. He knows all of it. When, when a nation is birthed, God knew it was going to be birthed before it was birthed, and he knows when it's going to end and how it's going to end, and that's what Daniel shows us, because he's looking at the whole parade all at once. So the whole parade of history is before the, the great grand sweep of the eye of God at all times. We serve a mighty God. And, and there is no book in the Bible, next to the book of Revelation, which we're going to talk about tonight some, there's no book in the Bible that um, really better shows that God is sovereign over nations, even when they are pagan, godless. God knows exactly when they're going to start, and he knows exactly when they're going to end, and how they're going to end, and who's going to replace them. So God never says, well, I'll be. Right? He never says, well, I'll be. Turns to Jesus up there, Jesus, did you know that was coming? No, I didn't know that was coming. I just can't believe that. That's why everybody around you was shocked that you got saved, but God wasn't shocked, right? Because God knew you were coming all the time, okay? So we've got to understand our mighty God. He knows the end from the beginning, and that's God. He was never born or created. He's always been. Let that twist your brain. He's always been. And he always will be. Jesus was never created. Jesus didn't come into being when he was born of the Virgin Mary. He didn't come into being then. He just came in a different form. He'd always been God the Son. And there was no beginning and no end. That, that twists our brain because everything in our life has a beginning and an end right? You get a brand new car. Oh, right. You're polishing that car twice a week, cleaning it, taking great care of it. But I guarantee you in a few years, it's going to be a piece of junk you want to get rid of, right? Because everything has a beginning and everything has an end in this world, but not God. He has no beginning and he has no end. Now, as we open our series of chapter seven of Daniel, the historical biographical portion of the book of Daniel took place in the first six chapters. We're not going through that because I didn't want to go through, you know, the children in the burning fiery furnace and Daniel in the lion's den. That's all biography, okay? I wanted to go into the prophecies yet to be fulfilled. And if you, when you start at Daniel chapter 7 through Daniel chapter 12, folks, listen to me. There are such profound prophecies, it's going to blow your mind how they were fulfilled, and how the ones that haven't yet to be fulfilled, we know they're going to because the other ones were perfectly fulfilled in a way that is almost chilling. Okay? So, the arrival of Daniel, the three Hebrew children, and how they tried to assimilate them into the Babylonian culture. All of that is in the first uh, six chapters. But chapters 7 to 12, we're moving into a purely prophetic portion of Daniel where we're going to encounter one, capital O, who Daniel calls the Ancient of Days, as well as his vision of the return of Christ, and we're going to have our very first encounter with the Antichrist in the book of Daniel in chapter 7. Now, I want you to keep in mind that Daniel 
along with the three Hebrew children. Where are they when this book is written? And where, where is Daniel in this context? He's in Babylon. He's in captivity. He's lost everything he, he knew, everything he was raised in, everything familiar. He's lost home and hearth, familiar surroundings, uh, uh, their own homeland. They've lost it. They've lost Jerusalem. They've lost the temple, the church house that he was raised in. They've lost it all. It's all been destroyed by the king of Babylon, King Nebuchadnezzar. It's a fulfillment of Jeremiah's warnings to them. Jeremiah prophesied to them for about four decades from the time he was a young man to the time he's an older man. He's warning them, calling them to repent, and they will not do it. They do not do it. They refuse to do it. Read the book of Jeremiah. It's like reading today's paper. The things that brought judgment on Judah are the very things we are doing. And I could go through the list, but that's not my topic tonight. We'll do it sometime. But they've been taken captive to Babylon. It's a horrible, horrible thing that happened. You read the book of Lamentations. It's hard to read. It's one of the hardest reads in the Bible because the book of Lamentations gives blow-by-blow graphic description of what these people went through when they lost everything and they were carried away in chains, naked, starving, bleeding into a foreign land because they refused to come back to God. During this time, as I already told you, the prophet Jeremiah has been hard at work for decades trying to get them to repent. There's other prophets prophesying during this time, Ezekiel, Habakkuk, Zephaniah. These were all prophetic contemporaries of Daniel and Jeremiah during this time. So the people of Judah, look how many prophets God sent to them. Turn, repent, turn, listen to me, turn. And he gave them decades, but they wouldn't do it. Now, I got to take you back a little bit to chapter 5 because I'm not going to read from it, but I'm going to tell you what happens there. Chapter 5 deals with the death of King Belshazzar, and Belshazzar is the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar. And now he's ruling the roost, but he is crazy. He is nutty. He has no fear of God, no honor for God, no thought for what might grieve God or, or cause God's wrath to be poured out. He's really a fool, and he's a party animal. Oh, yeah, he loves getting drunk, partying hardy. That's Belshazzar. And you know the story quickly. He threw a great big party one night, and they needed some vessels to hold the booze in. So they went to the temple and pulled out the sacred vessels, goblets, cups, set aside for the work of God. And he brings them in, and they use it to pour the booze in and get sodded. And it's this crazy party going on. And all of a sudden, a hand appears, just a hand, and starts writing. That'd be enough to get me. I'm on my face. I'm repenting. Hey, but they, they, all he wanted to know is, what is it saying? And I told you last time, Daniel was called. They remembered him. Now he's an old man. And they called him, and they said, what does it say? We'll give you all kinds of riches and all of that if you'll just tell us what it says. He says, I don't want your riches, but I'll tell you what it says. 
meeny, meeny, tackle you parson. Meeny, meeny, the kingdom, uh, you've been tried and found wanting. And the gist of the message was, you lose your kingdom now. You talk about a party crasher. This was, everybody got sober real quick. But they didn't know. But listen to this, everybody. The Medes and the Persians were on the way that night when the hand appeared. It's like today, if this happened, we saw a hand and it's saying, America's done and we're reading it. And on the way are cruise missiles. So on the way, they're on the way when he reads this. And it's no more read and interpreted by the great Daniel than the Medes and the Persians burst in, slaughter them all, and Belshazzar dies that night. Died, listen, oh, died a drunk. Died a godless drunk when he had the whole kingdom at his disposal. Now, keep that in mind because that was a fulfillment of what we saw last week. Um, all right? We're going to see that chapter 7 begins with Daniel jumping back in time to the first year of Belshazzar's reign. That's the first thing we're going to read about, chapter 7, verse 1, where Daniel informs us he had a prophetic dream and vision. Now, here goes the, the, the dream and vision. Chapter 7, Daniel, first one, verse 1. In the first year of Belshazzar. So he's, he's going back to when Belshazzar, Belshazzar took the kingdom, the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar. And Daniel had a dream and visions of his head while on his bed. Then he wrote down the dream, telling the main facts. In verse 2, Daniel spoke, saying, Here's what I saw. I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. That would be the Mediterranean. They weren't around the Pacific or the Atlantic. This would be the Mediterranean. The 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 four winds of heaven, from every direction, a mighty wind was blowing, and it was tossing the sea up, causing the sea to have mighty waves from every direction. And four great beasts, verse 3, came up out of the sea. Four great beasts, each one different from the other. This is a dream, amen? And this is not from too much pizza at night, can I just say? This is from the Holy Ghost. Four great beasts. Now, as we look at these four beasts, everybody, you're going to recognize a strong similarity to the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had in chapter 2 of the giant statue that we looked at last time. Because it is likewise a prophecy, same thing, of four kingdoms, each beast representing one of those kingdoms. Now, just to take you back quickly, he, he had a, uh, Nebuchadnezzar had a dream of a great statue. And the head of gold represented Babylon. Then you had the Medes and the Persians at, represented as silver. Then you had the Greeks represented as brass. Then you had the Romans represented as iron. And Nebuchadnezzar's dream interpreted by Daniel was prophetic reaching about five to 600 years into the future. Six centuries into the future. He saw six centuries into the future. And God gave that dream to a pagan king. 
And Daniel said, you're the head of gold, Nebuchadnezzar, Babylon, but Babylon's not going to last. Babylon's going to go away. It's going to be replaced by the Medes and the Persians. They're going to rule for a while, and they're going to be overtaken by the Greeks. And then the Greeks are going to rule for a while, and they're going to be overtaken by the Romans. And this, this, like I said, six centuries of future prediction in that dream. Wow. But see, we got the same idea here in this one. So hang with me. Remember that now, because this is sort of a repeat with, with different uh, uh, illustrations so that, man, we get it. We know these kingdoms are coming, right? All right. Um, verse 4. He says, the first creature was like a lion, and he had eagle's wings. And I watched till its wings were plucked off and it was lifted up from the earth and made to stand on two feet like a man, and a man's heart was given to it. Well, what does that mean? Well, Daniel tells us what it meant. This first kingdom, represented by a lion with eagle's wings, is Babylon. Just like the head of gold in the statue, this lion-like creature is Babylon as well. Different illustration, different dream. The wings like an eagle represent unrestrained flight. Babylon was king of the earth, and Babylon did what it pleased. Nobody could pull it down from its eagle-like flight. It went where it wanted to go and did what it wanted to to do. Babylon was the king of the earth. And you say, well, the wings were plucked off. Yes, that shows the loss of its power. Being lifted from the earth and made to stand with a man's heart is likely picturing the time Nebuchadnezzar, you'll remember, is in Daniel chapter 4, when Nebuchadnezzar lost his mind because of his pride. And for seven years, everybody, he crawled on all fours in fields and pastures like an animal. His fingernails grew out like bird's claws. His hair, oh man, was a mess. No barber for seven years? Come on. And he's crazy. And after seven years, his sanity was restored to him. And he lost his sanity because he, he took credit for Babylon instead of giving the glory to God. And God brought him down. And when he came out of that madness, he was saying, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. All right, but now we go to a second beast. Verse five. And suddenly another beast, a second one like a bear. It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And they said thus to it, Arise, devour much flesh. Now the bear represents the Medes and the Persians. They came in and conquered Babylon in one night. And in Nebuchadnezzar's dream, the parallel is the silver portion of the statue. So you got the chest and the arms of silver. Isn't it interesting? Two arms, two kingdoms, Medes and Persians. That was the silver. And you know what we know about the Medes and the Persians? Remember the bear was on its side, three ribs in its mouth, and they said to the bear, devour much flesh. In other words, you are a killing predatory machine. And here's what we know about the Medes and the Persians. They were a bloodthirsty, 
warlike people. Hence the words arise and devour much flesh. Totally makes sense when you look at the Medes and the Persians and how they behave themselves on earth. You say, well, what were the three ribs in the bear's mouth? Well, we know what they were. They were Egypt, Lydia, and Babylon because those are the ones the bear of the Medes and the Persians attacked and devoured. Everybody say, God's word is amazing. See, we have a great advantage tonight. Our advantage is we can look back on history and, and see what people in, in, in Daniel's day could not see. They could have the dream. He could interpret the dream supernaturally, but they couldn't see how it was all going to go down and, and, and who, who was going to be involved. But we can look back in history and see exactly how it went down and that the prophecy, the dream was fulfilled to the letter. Next, he describes a third beast. Verse 6, after this I looked and there was another, like a leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird. The beast also had four heads, and dominion was given to it. And this was easy. It's the Greeks under Alexander the Great, who conquered the Medes and the Persians and many other lands swiftly like, swiftly like a leopard. You know a leopard? If you take a leopard out and he sees an antelope way, way down the way, do you know that leopard can hit 80 miles per hour? <laughs> In short bursts, 80 Miles, think about that. Go down the highway, not tonight, don't, well, I'm not telling you to do it. Imagine it with me. But if you're going down the highway at 80 miles an hour, roll down your windows and just see how fast that is. Just the wind. But a leopard can run 80 miles an hour in short bursts. And that's what Alexander was like. Alexander, do you know that Alexander was taught by Aristotle Okay, And he was a little short fella, but he was a military genius, brilliant. And do you know that he died when he was 34 as an alcoholic and died of some disease? But before he died at 34 years of age, he had conquered uh, the known world. And he had turned the world Greek. And this was God's way, by the way, to prepare the way for the Greek language to be the language God chose to write the New Testament in because Alexander and his conquering all these lands, it turned all of them Greek. It, it, they were introduced to the Greek culture, the Greek language, and the Greek language became universal. And here we got now um, when the next, the next beast takes over, which is the Romans, and we got Jesus coming during the Roman rule, and what is the language? It's Greek. And it's the Koine Greek, we call it. K-O-I-N-E. Koine. That means the common Greek language, the common spoken Greek of the world. And it was the greatest language in the world for the New Testament to be written in. Because it's wider, deeper, broader, higher, has far greater depth than the English language. It's very descriptive. That's free. That's not in my notes. I'm just telling you, it's cool watching God. And, and you know when this happened? You know when Alexander did all this? He did it during the intertestamental period because Malachi closed out his prophecy, book of Malachi, the last thing in the Old Testament, for 400 years. There's no prophetic word at all. 
All they had was the Old Testament. And during these 400 years, so many things happened to set up the arrival of Jesus Christ. And one of them was the Greek language. Now, um, where was I? Oh, yeah. It was Alexander the Great, and it's the Greeks, this, this leopard animal that was seen. But notice, he had four wings of a bird. Now, just, just so you can keep tracking with me, in chapter 2, when Nebuchadnezzar had the dream of the statue, Alexander the Great and the Greeks are the belly and thighs of brass on Nebuchadnezzar's vision of this great statue. So those are the belly and thighs of brass. And when Alexander died, this explains the four wings. Because when Alexander died, his kingdom was divided amongst four, not three, not six, not two, four of his generals. Which accounts for the third beast having four heads. God knew what a whole nation was going to do. How it would end and who would replace it. What does God think when he looks down on America? Do you really want to know? We tend to think, oh, America, you know, nothing like it. In the whole. Well, I agree in many ways. That's true. But let me tell you what America is to God, a drop in the bucket. God knows the beginning of it, and God knows the end of it. There's only one kingdom that's never going to end, and we're going to read about it in just a minute. Now we come to the real focus of Daniel's vision. Here we come to the real thing now, which was also the main focus of Nebuchadnezzar's dream in chapter 2. Verse 7, after this, these three creatures, I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast. Everybody say beast. Dreadful and terrible, exceedingly strong. It had huge iron teeth. It was devouring, breaking in pieces, trampling the residue with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it. And watch this, everybody. It had ten horns. All right. Now, this is a bad boy. This beast here is a bad boy. Really bad. This fourth beast we know is Rome. In Nebuchadnezzar's dream of the great statue, the fourth beast is represented as the legs of iron. But in this one, it's this beast, this creature. The, 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 the distinguishing feature of this beast is the power that it possesses of breaking and stomping out everything in its path. Nothing can resist it. Nothing can keep it back. It conquers everything with its stomping, its breaking. It's like a monster in Daniel's dream, snorting, stomping, chewing, destroying, any opposition. And of course, this is exactly what Rome was like. It conquered the world with brute strength. Listen to what Roman writer Dionysius wrote about Rome. Listen to this. And see if it doesn't match up to this beast. The city of Rome, he writes, rules over all the earth as far as it is inhabited. It commands all the sea. Not only that within the pillars of Hercules, but also the ocean as far as it is navigable. Having first and alone of all the celebrated kingdoms 
made the east and the west the bounds of its empire. In other words, it conquered everything in every direction. And its dominion has continued longer than that of any other city or kingdom. The fourth beast, the legs of iron and the chewing, snorting, stomping, destroying creature with no name. It would be, writes Daniel, different from all the beasts before it. It was so different that God didn't give it a name and God didn't compare it to any of his created creatures like he did the bear and the leopard and so on. No, he said there's no comparison. There's no creature I made to compare this fourth kingdom uh, to. It's nameless. And at the very end of verse 7, Daniel adds that it has ten horns. Now, we're going to go into some uh, symbolism, Bible symbology, all right? So really watch this now, because this matters. Horns. When, when God says something like this, he says, I see this terrible creature. He stomps and destroys everything in his path, but he's, he's got ten horns. That matters. The Holy Ghost moved on Daniel to write that down. That's part of the dream. The Holy Ghost inspired that picture. So we need to look at it. What are horns in the Bible? They are symbols of power and they're symbols of authority. Anytime you see a horn, it's, it's, it's a symbol of political authority, generally, usually. And here we are immediately reminded of the same description of a beast with ten horns in none other than the book of Revelation. Now, I want everybody to perk up and listen to this. Watch this now. Let me tell you something about your Bible. All of it agrees. It is a book of incredible unity. It does not contradict itself. You know why? Though it has over 40 human authors, and are you ready? Was written within a 1,500-year time span. It all agrees because it was written by the same Holy Spirit. That's why it's such an amazing book. You don't see Daniel going, well, I disagree with John the Revelator. Or John the Revelator saying, you know what, I know what Daniel said, but I got a different take on this. Uh-uh. Daniel was centuries and centuries before John. But watch what we read. Revelation 13:1. Then I, John, stood on the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast. How did Daniel describe this thing? Beast. I saw a beast rising up out of the sea, having seven heads and what? Ten horns. And on his horns, ten crowns. And on his heads, a blasphemous name. Now, these ten horns, Daniel saw and John saw represent 10 kingdoms, all right? Remember the horn, political authority. 10 kingdoms that will ally themselves with a reborn, reappearing Rome when Antichrist appears, who Daniel describes next. Now, I'm going to stop before I read about Antichrist. What was Rome often called? The city of how many hills? Seven. Rome is called the city of seven hills. So 
we know that what we're about to read here about the Antichrist and these, this, this ten-nation confederacy that will appear in the last days, we're, we're going to know that this is going to happen in Europe where Rome is. Okay? Because City of Seven Hills, that's the seven heads. Now, let's continue. Verse 8. John, the revelator, says, I was considering the horns, and there was another horn, a little one, coming up among them, before whom three of the first horns were plucked out by the roots. And there, in this horn, we're reading about the Antichrist here, everybody. In this horn, the little horn, were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking pompous, arrogant words. Antichrist is the little horn. At first, he's inconspicuous, and that's why he's called the little horn. All right? Notice how it says he comes up among the ten. So the little horn appears when the ten have already come together, and here comes this little horn, and with the little horn, the Antichrist appears on the world stage. Apparently, because Daniel tells us later, he very rapidly gains power. And he does it by flattery and political genius. He very quickly gains power and control. And apparently there are three of these kingdoms represented by three of the horns that resist him. They don't want, no, I don't like what you're doing. I don't want to be a part of what you're doing. They resist him. And Antichrist, who is demon-possessed like nobody else in the history of the world, overthrows them. And notice he says they're plucked out by the roots. I mean, he does away with them. They're gone for good. He's ruthless. I want you to notice his personality. He's pompous. He's arrogant. He speaks proudly and boastfully. And he's filled with himself. They would, Jeff, how do you know this is a man? Because every time in the Bible, 2 Thessalonians, we can go to so many places where in the Greek language, um, he is referred to in the masculine gender. No doubt about it. Antichristos, OS, is masculine ending. Antichristos. So he's referred to in the masculine gender, not neuter, uh, not female. Not neuter where you can say, well, it could be anything, but no, masculine, singular, male. Next in verse 9, Daniel's vision takes him to the end of the world as we know it. Look at these words very carefully. Verse 9, I watched till thrones were put in place. Now, everybody say with me, these are prophecies not yet happened. I told you I was going to be looking at things that haven't yet happened. We're, we're, getting, we're reading some right now. Daniel says, I watched. Now he's looking way at the end of all time. That's how far reaching his dream was. I watched till thrones were put in place. Now, we learned about horns. What about thrones? 
Thrones in the Bible signify authority and judgment. Because, let me give you a for instance. The final great judgment of all mankind is called the great white throne judgment. So when we read about thrones, we, you got somebody like a king sitting in it, and he is able to execute judgment on the entire kingdom. So a throne represents judgment. And um, the context of these thrones that suddenly appear in Daniel's dream signifies, at the end of time, coming judgment on this fourth beast and Antichrist's evil kingdom. We're seeing that he will, now we know, and I'll be getting into this later in this series, but we know that the Antichrist comes into power during what is called the Great Tribulation Period. I believe the Great Tribulation Period could be very, very near us because of the way everything has set up prophetically according to the Scriptures. And Antichrist comes into power during the Great Tribulation period, and he, he is in power for seven years. The first three and a half years, it looks like everything is hunky-dory. The second three and a half, all hell breaks loose on earth. I'll go into that later in this series. So at the end of that seven years, what we're reading here is thrones are set up. God is getting ready to judge. God is getting ready to put an end to this final consummate, worst manifestation of evil in the history of the world. Antichrist will make Hitler look like romper room. Because he persecutes the Jews way beyond what Hitler did. And Hitler was a monster. But he was a type and a shadow of Antichrist. Then Daniel, while he sees these thrones setting up, Daniel sees something else, quote, and the Ancient of Days was seated, capital A, capital D, the Ancient of Days, that's a noun. He's calling somebody by this name, Ancient of Days. The phrase Ancient of Days means he who is most ancient as today's. Well, who's the most ancient as today's? God, an eternal one, God. Then watch how he describes the ancient of days. His garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. Where have we heard that? Again, we go to the revelation of John. Look what John writes. Revelation chapter 1, John is about to be really exposed to, he's about to receive the entire book of Revelation. He's sitting on the Isle of Patmos. He's an old man. Um, he's alone. He's exiled. He's persecuted. He's on this island for preaching the gospel. And suddenly he's about to be given 22 chapters of incredible prophecy. Okay? So chapter 1 is just the opening of John's Revelation. Look what he saw. I turned around. He heard a voice. And he turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. Everybody say, that's the churches. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man. Say, that's Jesus. Dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, with a golden sash around his chest. Verse 14, the hair of his head was light, white like wool, as white as snow. Where did we just read that? The book of Daniel. 
His eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace. And his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. You ever been, have you ever been in Niagara Falls? That's what Christ's voice sounds like. This roar. Wow. People tell me I have a loud voice. Let me tell you something. Next to this one. When Jesus speaks, forget E.F. Hutton. When Jesus speaks, everybody listens. Right? Now, the person depicted in both Daniel and Revelation is clearly the risen Christ. So we have agreement of the scriptures here. Daniel continues to describe his vision in verses 9 and 10. Quote, his throne was a fiery flame. That speaks of judgment. Its wheels a burning fire. That speaks of rapidity of judgment. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. That fiery stream is the stream of judgment being released upon Antichrist, the false prophet, Satan and the enemies of Christ at the end of the world. But Daniel sees even more. Chapter 10, or verse 10 rather. He says, a thousand thousands minister to this one with hair white like wool, flaming eyes, feet like polished brass. Look what's happening there in heaven. This is what's happening where we're going one day. A thousand thousands ministered him. They didn't just worship him, they ministered to him. And 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. Literally, a thousand of thousands, or thousands multiplied a thousand times. What John is saying is an innumerable multitude of angels. You wonder what's going on in heaven? Let me tell you something. People say, I don't want to go to heaven. Float around on a cloud forever, that'd be so boring. Let me tell you, this right here, you will never get bored. Amen? Because we're talking about, folks, you and me together, and billions of those who have been saved are going to be looking at Jesus, ministering to Jesus. (laughs) Oh, my. Standing before him throwing our crowns at his feet. You talk about a worship session. Then he says in verse 10, the third part of the verse, the court was seated. That means God's about to judge. And the books, everybody say books, plural, were opened. Now this picture, once again, takes us to John's revelation. Because this is what Daniel saw. Daniel said, I saw the court was seated. And I saw that there were some books that were opened. But we know that John said the same thing. Revelation 20, verse 12. When it came time, comes time to judge the whole world, it says, and books were opened, just like Daniel. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works. Now, people have called me on the radio when I do uh, To Every Man an Answer, and they have asked, what are the books, plural? Because I understand the book of life. He's going to open up one book, the book of life, and if your name is not found in it, you are in such deep trouble. But they say, but what are the books, plural, mentioned before the book of life? Well, 
I believe it's the books of deeds. The records of each person's sin. Because it says the dead were judged according to their works. How is the one sitting on the throne going to know their works? Because the books of their works are open. And everything they ever did. Folks, I think this is the scariest part of the Bible. Everything they ever did. You know, that's why when you face God, you're going to be in front of him in one of two ways. No other options. You're going to be with him as Christ by your side, who is your attorney, your advocate. He's your attorney. And he will say they're covered in my blood. But if you have not turned to Christ, and you have said, I don't need Christ. Oh, no, no, I'll, I'll, I'll get into heaven on my good works. But you're going to face him and plural books are opened. And everything you and I ever did, sinful, is recorded there. And you know what? If you don't have Christ, I believe you're either going to instantly know everything he's looking at or he's going to tell you. And he's going to say, all of this could have been washed away. But you didn't let me wash it away. Through the shed blood of my son on the cross of Calvary who bled and died for our sins. Muhammad didn't die for you. Buddha didn't die for you. The thousand and one gods of Hinduism didn't die for you. Only Jesus Christ, the son of the living God, died for you and me. And only his shed blood is going to vindicate us. This is sobering stuff, y'all. Sobering stuff. The dead were judged according to their works. And so here in Scripture, we have the repeated prediction of a solemn day of approaching judgment. Daniel, the thrones were set. John, I saw a great white throne. Same thing. Next, Daniel's attention is again turned to the Antichrist. We're coming down to the end tonight. Verse 11, I watched then because of the sound of the pompous words which the horn was speaking. I watched till the beast was slain and its body destroyed and given to the burning flame. Now again, we have an exact parallel prophecy in Revelations 20.10 where we find Satan, the Antichrist, and the false prophet all thrown into the lake of fire, just like we just read. Uh, 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 Daniel calls it a burning flame. John calls it the lake of fire. Same idea. And I'm going to read it. And the devil, John writes in the Revelation, and the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast, that's the false, the, the, the beast, that's his kingdom, and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So, so Satan... The, the Antichrist and the false prophet, listen, are going to be the first three creatures, humans, and spiritual being to ever break open the lake of fire. Do you know that right now there's nothing in the lake of fire? People say, what about people who have gone to hell? They're in Hades. They're awaiting the judgment. Because the Bible says death and Hades, when the great white throne judgment rolls around, Death and Hades are going to spew up the dead that are in them. 
So if you die without Christ, you don't go to the burning lake of fire because nothing is there yet. But you go to Hades. And there you wait, wishing that there could be a drop of water put on your burning tongue. I'm just quoting Jesus. Serious stuff, y'all. God help the churches who never warn people about this. What good are they? I don't want three points in a poem. I want somebody to tell me the truth of the word of God. I want people, somebody to get up and tell me that Jesus died for me. I want somebody to get up and tell me if I don't repent, I'm going to go to this place, hell. I want somebody to shoot straight with me like they did when I was sitting in juvenile home and I got saved. I didn't get saved because somebody gave me a motivational speech. You got it going on, guy. Even though you're in jail, you can get out of here and make something of yourself. No. That preacher put his long bony finger in my face and said, Jesus died for you so you won't go to hell. And it struck me right between the eyes. I'm telling you, please, these churches, they're not even talking, preaching the gospel anymore. You know why? They're afraid the money will walk out. But that money will burn. You know? No, you can't be afraid of the money walking out. Because anybody that walks out because you preach the word of God, God will bring two in their place to take their place. And believe me, I've learned that because I've had them get up and stomp right out. I never thought that I would see that, but I've, I've seen it, yeah, lately. Rumph. I can't believe you would say that. All I'm doing is quoting a Bible verse. Little old me. And they're out. And they fire me. That's all right. As long as Jesus doesn't fire me. If Jesus fires me, oh my. All right. Now, we come to the close. I know I said that a minute ago, but this really is. As for the rest of the beasts, verse 12, nations that Daniel saw, all right, the first three creatures, they had their dominion taken away, yet their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. So the fate of the first three beasts, the lion, the bear, and the leopard, is now revealed. They lose their dominion, and they disappear in God's timetable. So here comes the return of Christ. Verse 13, I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man, after this terrible judgment, coming with the clouds of heaven, he came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Now, this vision of Daniel again agrees with the book of Revelation. What did John say? Look, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him even those who pierced him. And all peoples on earth will mourn because of him, so shall it be. Amen. Now, folks, when Scripture so clearly and dramatically agrees like this, Daniel and John have, then you can mark it down. It's going to happen. Verse 14, and let's stand together to read this. We're going to read it together. You can read it with me. I think we're going to have it up there. But this is, now the judgment has happened. Here comes Christ. He's returning. And I want you to look at how time, as we have known it, ends. This is how it ends. Let's read it. Then to him was given dominion 
and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is a how long? Everlasting dominion, as opposed to all these other kingdoms that have come and gone, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, the one which shall not be destroyed. Amen, amen. How many of you are thankful that he's king of kings and lord of lords, and he's coming back? Now, just so you'll know, next week we're going to focus tight on Antichrist and the great tribulation. And will you be there? And if you are, what will it be like? And if you're not, what are people going to go through that miss the rapture? What are they going to experience? And can they be saved? And what about the mark of the beast? That's next week. All right? Amen. Let's lift our hands to the Lord of Lords and King of Kings. Jesus. We stand in awe of your amazing word. What can we say, Lord? Our mighty God, who stands at the end of something and sees the end before the beginning starts. Lord, we are all in your nail-scarred hands. We will live as long as you want us to. And when we pass from this earth, we will go into your presence. And we will minister to you with the angels of God and with all the redeemed saints of the Lord. Thank you, Lord, for that great day. And thank you, Lord, for helping us to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ to this world without apology or compromise that they might be saved from so terrible a fate if they're not saved, we thank you for it. Can you just say, bless the Lord.